We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fellas, listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to The Buffalo Bills. Oh, come on! Let me tell you what. Hey, let me tell you something, man. The Buffalo Bills can run the football very effectively. The Buffalo Bills has a top five defense. They can get to the ball. They can take the ball away. They know how to play some defense, and they ain't never scared. If they could get that young quarterback to just hold on to the ball and not turn the ball over, I'm telling you, these guys ain't to be played with, man. Another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Kruger. And that was NFL Network talking to Deion Sanders. <laughs> Deion Sanders, we are a threat to the Patriots, said no one ever since 1992. Boys and girls, <laughs> children of all ages. I feel refreshed. I am excited to be back here behind the microphone. Chris, the bye week, I think it did us some good. I really do. I feel refreshed. I feel re-energized. I feel like yeah, I because have- we were watching football. I mean, we didn't watch football together, but we were watching football. No horse in the race. You just get to take in a Sunday of football. Nothing to be mad at. <laughs> it was nice. I mean, although on our bye week, we did jump from number three to number two in the AFC. We have a ton to talk about, folks. But before we do, first and foremost, thank you to everybody who came out for Potathon 3 on Saturday. It was a great time. We get to meet a, bu- a bunch of people. The crowd, the Chris, this is easily the biggest crowd that's ever showed up for it. Sabretooth was there. Tons of prizes got given away. I think he there, got lost. There was a lot of great conversation. <laughs> we met new fans. We met new listeners to the show. We met Greg Bausch who's actually one of the more interesting people who used to work in radio I think I've ever talked to. Yeah, I didn't get a whole a whole bunch uh, to talk to. I did give him a card. We were handing out cards to people. <laughs> he was the only one that got a card. And uh, we, I, 
for the he you spent most of your time talking to him. I had a couple of chances to talk with him and Listen, you, any time I get to talk comedy with a local comedian, uh I love it. I we love it. We talked about being in sports radio. We talked about comedy, bombing in front of people, having a lack of shame, not caring what people think about you, which is exactly what folks, it's exactly why I'm still here. Because last week was rough. <laughs> As we kick the show off, I'd like to start off Chris, was last week the most inflammatory podcast we've ever recorded? Probably. I think it might be. Probably. We might have to start doing a segment after (laughs) uh, Josh Bad Games by Josh Allen, where we get other uh, Buffalo radio personalities, Buffalo Bills podcast hosts, to come on to talk you off the ledge. Listen, folks... To start this conversation, I know that it's hard to hear someone disparage something that you so badly want to believe in. I mean, that's the reason journalists like Bucky Gleason are retired and that Jerry Sullivan has been exiled to whatever the hell radio station. Chris, is it a radio station or is it actually just something he broadcasts from his garage? I don't even know. I have no idea. No idea. I assume it's either in his garage or on a college campus somewhere. Being contrarian just for the sake of it is a terrible way to go through life. It's right up there with uh, Animal House. What is it? Uh, what was the quote? Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. Being a contrarian just for the sake of it, that's not a way to live either. But that's exactly how I was branded after last week's tirade and the subsequent podcast regarding Josh Allen. People took to Facebook, to Twitter, even our email to tell me that I was a hack that I don't need, I don't know the first thing about football, that I'm a quote-unquote bad fan. Some of you even wish terrible things on me, which is hysterical because I thought that kind of thing was only reserved for the refs after we play the Patriots. I mean, Chris, you've heard, <laughs> you've heard some wild. I have, I have me. heard, I have heard. But it should all make it better because you tripped in the press conference. Oh, I didn't, I tripped and fell hard in front of my wife, friends, family. Brutal. I guess deservedly so. I think one of my favorite tweets that came in came from uh, Due to Me, our friend out in California, formerly of Paradise, who came in with a tweet that says, New rule, Chris confiscates Drew's phone until Monday morning. <laughs> I, don't think that, I don't think we can actually do that, but uh, I will tell you, this Sunday we had a three-game home stretch starting with Miami. We'll have Travis Wingfield on in a minute. Uh, but I will absolutely follow through with that tweet because half the time when I start taking down the tailgate, at some point I do end up with your phone and I'm just going to Irish goodbye the tailgate, walk into the stadium with your phone, and I'm going to text your wife saying, I have Drew's phone, just so you know, he's not going to have it. And then I will also text Potter, hey, I have Drew's phone, don't tell him, when he tries to use it to call his wife that he can't find his phone. (laughs) Simple as that. Listen, guys, everyone out there listening to this podcast, just on the off chance we haven't hemorrhaged every listener we've gained over the last five years. Here's what I'd like to say, having had some time to sleep on it. First of all, last Sunday was catharsis for me. It was getting some things, and last week's podcast was getting some things off my chest. No, did did I go about it the right way? Eh, I think I could have been a little more nuanced. I'll agree with some of that. But I feel better having at least voiced what I'm thinking, which is the entire idea behind this podcast. Chris, I have no interest in being a journalist. 
I, I had that opportunity when I went to college for it. That's not why we're here doing this. For me, it's a constant chase of catharsis. And I got mine. Oh, did I get mine. And I'm sorry that it was so upsetting to all of you. Now, for those of you out there who were reaching out to us simply to attempt to hurt our feelings, you can't. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm pretty much dead inside. Yeah, I'm dead inside. You can yell at us all you want on Twitter. We don't care. I try to explain. We're to gonna my w- do the type of show we're gonna do, <laughs> I which is explaining to my wife before we got married that I have the emotional depth of a swarm of hornets. Like this is this is who I am. So with that said, you can direct all your vitriol at me, and I I will take it. And I'll laugh. And I mean, guys, let's face it. If thirty years of rooting for the Bills hasn't given you thick skin, then you're probably doing this whole fandom thing wrong. Secondly, Nate was 100% correct in his assertion last week that there is a place for both camps on Josh Allen. Those who trust the process and Josh Allen as a quarterback and where he can grow, and those who still feel like they need to see more out of him in the, in the present on a week-to-week basis. We can all exist under the same banner of fandom, just because I'm not overly impressed by his development so far doesn't mean that I don't care. I mean, Chris, if I didn't care, we wouldn't be standing out in a field on Sunday before sunup when it's probably about 32 degrees, freezing our asses off, setting up a tailgate that hopefully people show up and have a good time at. Yeah, we live for this shit. That's why we're season. That's why we're season ticket holders, and then that's why your friends don't hate you, so you don't waterboard them with bills information. This is your outlet. This I mean, is what this is for. I wouldn't be there trying to create an environment for people to show up and talk about the team and bond over. I wouldn't scream myself hoarse during the games or leave with bruised hands from drumming on the seats. And I certainly wouldn't be putting my time and energy into what I hope is an entertaining and informative podcast. I will apologize if my manic brand of fandom bothers you. But make no mistake, I do all of this stuff because I care. And it's because I care that I'm not going anywhere. So so if you hate my guts, that's fine. I understand if I rubbed you the wrong way and you just can't, you just can't reconcile it, then Godspeed. But for everybody else who plans on sticking around, Chris, cheers to those people. Yeah, cheers. (laughs) And so with that, the bye week. The NFL weekend with the Buffalo Bills on the sidelines. I got to tell you, Chris, it's always a weird one because a lot of us celebrate it in a lot of different ways. You know, I know some people who spent their weekends at children's birthday parties. I know some people who spent their weekends at Home Depot trying to find replacement sump pumps. Me, personally, I love this. I love the bi-week Sunday. I love it. Chris, what did you do with your day? Uh, I drank seldomly because you know because you got a little loose after potathon. I got a little loose after potathon, so I kept things low key. And then the lady came over and we made enchiladas and watched the Sunday night game. Is that a euphemism or did you actually make enchiladas? We legitimately made enchiladas. (laughs) Okay, all right, just checking. See, now my day was. I don't know. It was My day was great. A friend of mine and his wife came over with their dogs, which is always advantageous because it just wears everybody out who's associated with it. We hung out for the first few games, had some drinks. It was more low-key than anything I'm used to on game day, but it was nice. I mean, just watching action around the league with no animosity. My liver thanked me, I'm sure, because there's, I, I drank probably a quarter of what I normally would on a Sunday. 
And yet at the same time, in an interesting note, Chris, I rolled into Monday with a hangover. Not from booze, because that would be too simple. No, no. I realized, I learned that at the age of 34, I'm too old to pound down what amounts to about a full pound of pork, cilantro, Velveeta cheese, garlic, and Reaper pepper salsa. We, I made a crock pot of homemade queso dip, and every time I walked past it for the entire day, I just kept eating cheap, chips of it. You know, I'm walking around watching this game, watching that game, and I keep eating it, keep eating it. And by about 6 o'clock, my wife, you know, hey, what do you want to do for dinner? And I'm realizing, holy shit, I don't think I can eat dinner. I, I don't want to be alive anymore. I felt like a boa constrictor when it swallows. Like, like you see those pictures where they swallow something. That they, like they swallow a horse and it's just a snake with that giant thing sticking out of their stomach. That's what I felt like for the next 24 hours. It, it actually, Chris, took me down. Well, yeah. Well, your problem is using Velveeta cheese for a dip. (laughs) I mean, Chris, people often question why I own both season tickets and the NFL Sunday season ticket package. But it's so I can watch every game that's out there. It's a decent question. It's expensive. And it keeps me tethered to a TV service that, while living in an area known for ridiculous precipitation, will lose signal if it rains too hard. Direct TV might be one of the worst things to ever happen in my life. And it's something I can only really take full advantage of eight weeks out of the year. But Sunday, Chris, Sunday is the day that I point to and I say that was magic. Because I can watch everything. I feel like a goddamn king. Everything, my, my beer fridge, every game is at my fingertips. Some friends, some grub. There's no yelling at the TV, no booze-soaked rants about quarterbacks or offensive play calling it's a great day. It's magic, Chris. Yeah, you probably had a lot of fun watching Gardner Minshew throw for, what, 400 yards? Three, 400 <laughs> God, yards, God, right? God, right? God, hate right? You. right? 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 <laughs> I'm going to have to listen to this all year. Chris, what were your favorite games of the weekend? I mean, I don't have the ticket or anything. I don't even have cable here. So, I mean, I just watched what was on locally, which on Fox we had the, the Seahawks and the Browns game. And then on CBS we had the Chiefs and the Texans. And I was... Flipping back and forth, and then I just eventually stuck to the Seattle-Cleveland game. Is it fair to say that the Seattle Seahawks doing the in-sync bye-bye-bye dance in the end zone might be the highlight of the whole weekend? Probably. They were, you know, all on point. (laughs) You know, because I'm just picturing all of the practice time that went into that end zone dance. Like, that's cool, but you can never use it again. But I'm picturing in the locker room somewhere or at the practice facility with no pads on, there are, fro- there are four grown adult men practicing doing that dance in sync. See, I can see, you know what I can see? Because generally across the NFL, Tuesday's your off day. So I can see these four wide receivers getting together. To, hey, come over, watch Monday Night Football. <laughs> I'll make a salad and we can learn bye, bye, bye dancing. Now, I can run down what my favorite points of the day were pretty easily, Chris. First of all, Atlanta loses to Kyler Murray. Okay, that must make you happy. Oh, I love it when I, I love when it, any Atlanta team loses. Even the Atlanta Dream, the WNBA. <laughs> watching watching the Falcons lose on that kick, and then the Braves just not even showing up for Game Five against St. Louis. Amazing television. And then to your point, the Browns game, poorly coached, and their players are paying for it. I watched that whole game too. They went to two and four on Sunday, and you can argue it's completely their own fault. They're in the driver's seat for their. They were up like 20 to 6 at one point. Ultimately, turnovers kill offensive momentum in the red zone twice. 
Coach challenges two bad plays, loses both of them. And then when there's a valid challenge to be had, he's just standing there with his dick in his hand. And then struggle, the, the whole team struggled to execute and any kind of successful plays near the goal line. That's the story of the game for them. Which, anything terrible that happens in Cleveland is a good day. It's a good thing for me. And then Houston versus Kansas City was as good as advertised. Now, did you get to watch any of that game? Well, yeah, that was here on locally, but like I, I kind of gave up into the first quarter because uh, like I feel like Kansas City jumped out to like a seventeen to six lead, and I was like, oh, they're just going to steamroll them the rest of the way, <laughs> and so I stuck to the Browns and Seahawks game. Well, no, and that's exactly what you would think. I mean, both teams set records for penalties. Watson really, I think, had his statement game of his career so far. It was absolutely must-watch TV. Hopefully some of you here in Buffalo who don't have the Sunday ticket got to take it in. And so with all of the action this weekend in the books, we have Week 7 sitting in front of us. And Chris, i got to look at this. Our outlook in the AFC as of Week 7, the Bills are sitting pretty. Very pretty. We are currently in second place. Chris, I'm going to repeat this again for the people in the back. The Bills are in second place. In the AFC. Not just second place. Second place in week seven of the NFL season. And once again, as you heard in the intro, the national media is all up on their bullshit. (laughs) All of a sudden, the national media loves the Buffalo Bills, which terrifies me. I mean, it's a crazy feeling. Now, there's a wide range of professional takes. Obviously, Deion Sanders has his ridiculous opinion that we are the second best team in the division. I mean, Chris, good Lord. I don't even know. How does this man get on TV? Between him and Michael Robinson, I feel like either one of us could be qualified to do that job. 100%. I mean, all he does is dress well and stands by a street sign that says 21st and Prime. (laughs) And then you've got Colin Cowherd who is still buying what Buffalo is selling, just articulates it in what I think is a little more of a nuanced manner. I think Buffalo does have a ceiling offensively. They are so good, though, situationally. The number that jumps out to me, they've had 14 red zone trips this year, uh, and they've scored 10 touchdowns. So that that is a team, the play calling's good. They, they went in the offseason, and they upgraded their offensive line. And... I like their staff last year, and I like their defense, but their offensive line has taken all that chaos and all that inconsistency last year and just pulled it down a little bit. It's a great defense, a great staff, a limited offense, but a pretty good situational offense in Buffalo at number eight. It's Colin Cowherd, Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports Radio, The Herd. You know, I should grab his audio. I don't know if you, how much you watched the herd, but I should grab the audio that he said in May. He plays this three-word game with every NFL team, and in May he for Buffalo he had still miles away. Cause he's a chode. <laughs> I have such a hard time taking him seriously, even though you seem to love the sound of his voice. I just yep. I can't. It just bothers me. All of this national love for the Buffalo Bills. It just seems out of place. It's like me, I mean, that Perry Ellis, you know, Chris, maybe you have this. Perry it's, Ellis? No, it, 100% no. I tell you right now, I don't like have It's like going through your closet and digging out that shirt that you used to wear when you were in your early 20s and you were trying to look cool when you'd go out to the bar. 
And now you dig it out of the closet and you put it on and you find out that it just, I don't know, you can only button it to about the middle of your chest. The sleeves are way too short. They don't go down over your forearms anymore. So you can't do like the cool guy roll up your sleeve thing. Like it just doesn't fit and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. That is how I feel about the national media and people at large being high on the Buffalo Bills. It just, it doesn't sit right with me. We haven't had this since the early 90s. Because I don't trust it. Not in my lifetime have I ever learned that I can trust when the Bills are being good. So it's just making me nervous. I mean, then again, no one could have predicted the chaos in the NFL standings right now. Two of the preseason NFC championship favorites between the Rams and Dallas, they're both currently 500 football teams coming off of embarrassing losses. Four of NFL Network's top 10 teams when the season started are currently without their starting quarterbacks for what is a significant period of time, including two in the AFC, Indianapolis and Pittsburgh. Two of the teams in our division have a combined record of one and nine. I mean, Chris, I think that goes a long way towards all of this optimism, doesn't it? Well, yeah. If, you, if there are two teams in your division that is a combined record of one and nine, that generally means you should have four wins right there on your sketch. Now, combine that with the emergence of the Bills' defense and their steady, if not, I, I want to call it pedestrian offense, leading us to four wins in five games. That's not something even the most optimistic fan could have predicted at this point. And it's got people excited. Not just here in Buffalo, but remember that, Chris, that mainstream media hype. It's just, it keeps getting louder the more games we win. And looking at the schedule as it lays out in front of us, it seems like we're set up for some success here. We have, as a football team, the easiest strength of schedule in terms of current wins and losses going forward for the rest of the season. Okay? There are contenders in the NFL who find themselves in, you know, I guess in the AFC that you would, Chris, the, the teams, the teams that you expected to be where we are right now that have much more difficult schedules and much more serious injury issues at play. Yeah, I would look at Indianapolis and Pittsburgh, who we play Pittsburgh later in the season. They are on their backup quarterback. So with all of that, I mean, between now and Thanksgiving, there's a lot there to to make you feel confident. And I think Sunday against the Dolphins is going to, depending on, I think Sunday's going to tell a story, a story of whether Buffalo is the team that we all think they are, or if they're just another Bills team that teases you with the ability to be great and then shits the bet on you. If they go in there and handle business the way that they should, the way everyone else has when they play Miami, then that's going to go a long way towards setting up our expectation level, I think, as a fan base when it comes to games against Washington, another game against uh, Miami, against a team like Cleveland that is underwhelming wildly because of the state of their coaching staff and their offensive line. So given that, I think it's worth at least taking a look around the conference to see how our situation stacks up with the people that we're jockeying for position with. Chris, at the top of the conference, you've got, I guess, who you'd call familiar faces. New England is still on top. But after watching that Thursday night football game, and they're struggling to put away a Giants team that's without the best running back in football in Saquon Barkley. They're missing their number one tight end. They're missing almost all of their meaningful wide receivers. (laughs) And Chris, as you're watching the Patriots offense go up against this anemic defense of the Giants, 
Tom Brady's balls were an inch from the bandsaw on more occasions than not whenever he dropped back to pass because of how bad their tackle play is. It seems like it's getting worse for them instead of better as the weeks go on. They're being bailed out by a special teams unit and a defense that's... They're essentially buoying the rest of the team. According to Pro Football Reference's advanced passing stats, Tom Brady is tied with Jared Goff for the most quote-unquote bad throws of any quarterback in the NFL to this point. Those are defined as uncatchable balls delivered in the vicinity of a pass catcher and thus not considered a throwaway. Their rushing attack is its just ranked 19th, which I think speaks to the fact that their offensive line is ranked 25th by football outsiders when it comes to getting to the second level of a defense and providing rushing lanes. Think about all of the tape that we've seen on Frank Gore this season. A lot of Frank Gore's success has come off of the fact that he gets to that second level. That we have guys, tight ends, moving in space to make good blocks. They only have one tight end on the roster right now. They just brought back Ben Watson, who they let go, and then had to bring him back because they lost another tight end to injury. There's two, Chris. Two on their whole roster. One of them's older than dirt, and the other one looks kind of lost. There is no Gronk replacement coming. There, it doesn't seem like there's any reinforcements coming at wide receiver. Chris, how long can this team remain undefeated with the? I mean, they've got a difficult schedule laid out in front of them. I don't even, who, I don't even know who's on their. Uh, okay, they have to go sketch. So we talked about it last week, but they have a seven game schedule where they they play Cleveland on Monday Night Football, or maybe it's Sunday Night Football. It's in prime time. Then they have to go to Baltimore. They have to go to Philadelphia. They have to play, I know they have to play Houston. They also have to play the Chiefs. And there's somebody else thrown in there that I'm forgetting about. But either way, those aren't pushovers. You know? Especially those road games. At Houston. At Baltimore. At Philly. I figured they could handle Baltimore because I I don't believe in Lamar Jackson at all. Either way, it's going to be interesting to see, based on everything that's going wrong for them, especially Josh Gordon tweaks his knee last week. This team, I feel like from a talent perspective, is just, just, again, <laughs> they're, they're, they're teetering on the edge of something terrible. Kansas City, you look at Kansas City, you want to talk about on the edge of something terrible, they've fallen clean off it. They're a dynamic offense with explosive playmakers. I mean, you look at Tariq Hill, he came back and in his first game, he mossed a guy. He Randy mossed. I saw that, I watched that live as it happened. And just ran into the end zone. But their rushing defense was gashed to pieces to the tune of 192 total yards and couldn't outscore a Watson-led team on their home field. Their offense has zero balance. I mean, Chris, they had 53 yards rushing on 11 attempts. And it leads to them falling behind the Bills into third in the AFC. The book seems to be out on Kansas City that if you can keep things on the ground and move the chains... You can keep Mahomes and the rest of those talented playmakers on the sidelines long enough to have a shot at winning the game. They've allowed 190 yards rushing per game for the last four weeks. An average of 190. Chris, if your team was giving up 200 yards on the ground almost every game, you almost wouldn't think you'd win football games, right? Correct. You just wouldn't win. You'd be the Miami Dolphins. The only thing bailing them out is the fact that their offense has the ability to sometimes outscore their opponent in a firefight. So now, it seems like 
Chris, I almost feel bad for them because they invested so much in that defensive line in terms of pass rushing. You know, I think they thought coming into the season, they didn't invest in D-tackles. They didn't go out and get run-stopping linebackers. Instead, they just got better pass coverage guys like Darren Lee. They traded for Frank Clark and then gave him a fat contract extension. He's been terrible against the run. Their whole defense has. So now you're looking for answers as you head forward, finding out that the revamped defense that you thought you built can't stop a nosebleed, and teams are clearly willing to use it against you. On the flip side of that coin from Sunday is Houston. Houston's capable of fantastic things, as long as Watson is healthy and their offensive line can support him. Now, Chris, you watched, did you see uh, offensive tackle Titus Howard? Yes, I did. I watched him go down with that injury. That was like a Willis McGahee type knee injury. That was that was ugly. And his replacement when he came in, I, I'd say struggled. When I I remember thinking to myself as I'm watching it, that guy is not nearly as good as the guy who they just carted off the field. I don't know what's going to happen to the Texans, but their defense hasn't been great. Chris, remember Philip Gaines? Former Bills cornerback who was cut in the middle yep. of the season. Heard of him. Even though we lost Vontae Davis, they cut Philip Gaines because he was that bad. He is now a starter for the Houston Texans because of the injuries in their secondary. That's Chris, they are averaging 426 yards per game over the last month. So when you look at their 3-1 and record for Houston, you're thinking that's impressive. How long can you sustain that with an offensive line that can't keep your quarterback clean and can just barely support the run against bad defenses? I don't know. If you were a Houston fan, would you be concerned? I'm always concerned because they seem to never have an offensive line. And then Baltimore, to your point. Baltimore is something of an enigma. They've lost a few low-scoring games, but they've proven that they're capable of scoring points, I don't know, when they're playing Miami. And Arizona. (laughs) Their tight ends are more dangerous than their wide receivers at this point because their quarterback is the only one besides Allen who sometimes just goes out there and plays more like a running back than a quarterback. It took, Chris, against the Bengals, it took over 100 yards rushing on the ground and a touchdown on 19 rushing attempts by their quarterback for them to beat the Bengals who are playing without both of their starting quarterback cornerbacks. Yes, yeah, I mean, we're going to play that. Why can't? Throw the ball to a wide receiver. Is he allergic? Is there something? <laughs> does, does the man have an allergy I don't to th- anyone with the number eight on his jersey? I don't think Lamar Jackson's smart enough to read an NFL de- defense. And we're, what, a month and a half away from playing the Ravens? And I think that him playing our defense is going to be a massive challenge that I don't think he'll win because Greg Roman's going to throw 407 plays at him to learn in a week. <laughs> Greg Roman. Ah, God bless that guy. Now, I mean they're running the they are running the ball at a historical pace. They really are. The rushing attack is something to be afraid of. But Jackson unless he's running the football, he's not as dangerous as everyone wants you to think he is. And so with that, Chris, you're looking at the people currently sitting with us at the top of the conference. To be in the mix with these teams and to point out each team's weaknesses and where their strengths lie. Baltimore is the rush. Houston, it's not their defense. It's maybe Watson. Watson might be their only true advantage. And I don't know how long that lasts behind a suspect offensive line. Kansas City is Patrick Mahomes and his ridiculous ability to just make these flash plays. But even that's failed them for two weeks in a row. 
The Patriots, an aging quarterback behind an elite defense. You have to feel pretty good about where the Buffalo Bills sit right now. No? I feel really good, and it's and it's in conjunction with what we're about to go over here, your wild card outlook, because we're playing this year the AFC North. And by what you have here, 8-16 and 16 record for that division, 33 uh, win percentage. I mean, we, just, not- we were a little bit lucky here that we have to play that division this year. It's if folks, if when you take a look at how the conferences are the divisions are currently breaking out. You start with the AFC North. The Steelers defense and rushing attack just keyed them to a, their second win of the season. <laughs> well, I can imagine that that has to make them feel better. The fact is this division is almost doomed by the fact that there's been a series of really poor starts. I mean, think about it. The Ravens lost to Cleveland, but Cleveland only has 2 wins. And, <laughs> I mean, they just barely squeaked. I don't want to call it barely squeaked by, but they did. They, the Ravens squeaked by Cincinnati the same way the Bills did. And then you look at what the rest of the division is made up of. Nobody else has an elite quarterback. I think that's what this comes down to. Nobody has an elite offense in that conference, in that division. And so because of it, they're all going to cannibalize each other over the f- coming weeks. In this case, it's noteworthy that Buffalo has control over their own destiny when it comes to how they stack up with the AFC North. Because we have the ability to stake their claim to tiebreakers over every single one of these teams every time we get to every time we get to take the field with them. That's amazing because in recent years when we get to late November, early December, and we're always the team that's in on the in the hunt graphic. But we're at the bottom because we don't have these tiebreakers that we need. Okay, well, here's an opportunity for us not only to get one over the entire because we're already one in with Cincy. Looking at the way the rest of these teams have played, and just the way they play each other, and the way they've performed over the course of the season, I don't see anything here that you should be overwhelmingly afraid of. It is possible that one of these three teams somehow go on a furious run down the stretch. But from where I'm sitting right now, it's hard to see more than one team out of that division making the playoffs, just given the state of the rosters. I mean, the, the Steelers just put their best interior pass rusher, Stephon Tuitt, on IR. All of these teams have been rattled with injuries, just rattled with them. Riddled, maybe that's the word. Who gives a fuck? Chris, they're lousy with injuries. Yeah. And so with that said... The team controlling it all is the team that's the healthiest, but also as a quarterback who doesn't throw the ball well. That bodes well for a team with a top-flight defense like ours. We control our own destiny. I'm not worried about them. The AFC West. Right now, they're 11-2 and two with a 47.8% win percentage. 11-12. and 11-12. and 12. The Chargers are in something of a free fall at this point. They just lost to something called Devlin Hodges. I don't even know what that is. They said something about a duck, a duck call. I, I don't even, it, Chris. What is a Devlin Hodge? I, it's apparently an uh, maybe an undrafted quarterback. But I mean, if you watch the game on Sunday night, Chargers <laughs> Chargers lost because they turned the ball over and turned the ball over early. I don't know. What I saw was a team that didn't score in the first. You don't Ooh. spill that beater. Ooh, it's close. God, that was cold. I saw a team that didn't score in the first or second quarter for the second week in a row. Chris, you're not a good you're not a good football team if you can't score any points. 
I've railed against the Buffalo Bills for not being able to score in the third quarter. What would happen, Chris? What do you think my reaction would be if the Bills went two weeks in a row without a first half point? Well, we'd be watching the second half at your house. <laughs> it's entirely possible, folks. I might, my, my, again, to keep my teeth from turning around to devour my brain, I might have to just walk away. Ultimately, the Chargers, in my mind, were the next best team besides Kansas City to come out of this division. But right now, I don't know what they are, and I don't think they do either. Injuries have decimated their roster. They're starting former Buffalo Bill Ryan Groy. That's not good. That's a thing that's happening. That's not good. And they have games against Kansas City, Green Bay, Minnesota, and Chicago. I, I just don't see them finding a way here. The Raiders are surprising because they have three wins. And an elite quarter. Oh, Jesus Christ. Are we ready to let this die, Chris? Can yes, you? I'm ready to let this die because it's all because of his broken leg. Ultimately. It's like a Trent Edwards thing, <laughs> except with legs. Ultimately, the Raiders are interesting, but I just don't trust their coach, their quarterback, or the skill set that they have. Or their owner and their owner's haircut. No, I don't trust any of those things. It looks like he got he it looks like he got his haircut in a McDonald's parking lot. Like that I don't know what to make of that. But with that said, no again, you're talking about a division where none of the teams in that division scare you. I I could see them being a one playoff team division at this point. Then the AFC South. And this is where I get concerned, Chris. We've already talked about Houston. Indianapolis. Indy is a team that's going to, regardless of which one of them, right now they're kind of going back and forth, but they're going to be teams that are in the mix here throughout the course of the season. And it's part of the reason I was rooting against the Texans going into this weekend. Indy is a well-coached team with a favorable schedule. And even if they can't win the division Whichever one, Houston or Indy, that falls out of contention for their own division crown is going to likely be in that wildcard race until the very end because they're good teams with good skill players. T.Y. Hilton, uh, DeAndre Hopkins. You're talking about good running backs. Marlon Mack. Uh, Carlos Hyde had a coming out party this weekend. Uh, There's just a lot of things for them all. Will Fuller. Things for them to work with here. I think that the AFC South is probably the one that's an absolute threat to steal one of the two available wildcard spots, given the quality of the rest of the division and the fact that Houston and Indy are good enough to keep pace out of the division as well. I see them as our primary competition for a wildcard spot going forward as we don't play them, and therefore we have really no control. You know what I mean? We, it's not like we can go down there and play them for a win that might matter come Week 17. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, we got wins against the Bengals in, uh, in Tennessee. As, as long as we get the wins against AFC opponents, those are the ones that matter, not the NFC. Because remember, didn't, we, didn't that one year with Doug Marone, we went like 9-7, and seven, but we had four wins against the NFC North? <laughs> those wins don't matter as much as beating your own conference. No, you're absolutely right. It's the conference wins that matter. Also, it's taking care of business in your own division. The Bills come out of their by one and one in their own division. And with that, I want to take a look around as we do every week in the AFC East Roundup, Week 6 edition, what happened in our division. 
Chris, we start things off with the New England Patriots. Patriots. I didn't watch that game. Oh, Jesus. Patriots 35, Giants 14. I'm going to give you the cliff notes because I hate talking about these guys. Brady looked really old in the first half. The Patriots offensive tackles couldn't keep him clean, gave up multiple sacks, and almost forced multiple fumbles. <laughs> they just can't mirror in space. You know, these tackles can't handle speed rushers. I mean, think about the Giants' offense, our defense, they're not considered powerhouses. No. Uh, as in terms of pass rush. But I thought the Patriots had Dante Skonekia. <laughs> well, right now their tackles are making him look like him look like garbage. A mediocre group of pass rushers for the Giants just em- really embarrassed those tackles, and I think it's what kept the game close for most of it. They struggled to put away a rookie quarterback at home who was missing almost every single meaningful offensive player on his roster. And more egregious lack of penalties called on things that the media then pans the next day. It's almost as if the league isn't even willing to try and hide the fact that they're propping up Brady for one last goodbye tour. Fuck the Patriots. Then, in what I think was one of the biggest surprises of Sunday, the New York Jets. Jets 24, Cowboys 22. Chris, holy shit am I glad we got the New York Jets week one before their offense really knew what the hell they were doing. What's your opinion on that? Come on now, it's Sam Darnold. Would you rather have Sam Darnold or Luke Falk or David Fales? <laughs> Sam Darnold's making it. He threw over 300 yards as you double fist. Yeah, we've reached the podcast, folks, where I have a beer in each hand now. 300 yards <laughs> passing for Sam Darnold. He's a real deal. I, listen, the Jets' defense held Dak Prescott to 87 yards passing in the first half. Darnold had more than that on his one touchdown pass to Anderson, doubling them up. In the first half, Chris. Had him, had him on the bench. <laughs> they held the Cowboys to six points offensively in the first half, which included a 62-yard field goal. I mean, Chris, is it fair to say that the book is out on the Dallas offensive coordinator, uh, Kellen Moore, and his <laughs> his quote-unquote revolutionary offense? Uh, he's Look, he's young, he's offensive, he's going to get looks in the offseason. By who? The Canadian could, Football League? Could be Dallas. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Losing your number one receiver at the beginning of a game, it's not ideal. And with Cooper sidelined, I mean, that that <laughs> there wasn't anybody to clear out the box. And the Jets just squatted on a lot of the short passing game that Dak Prescott's gotten used to relying on. But when you come into the season, Chris, pegged with, this team could be in the NFC Championship game, you don't expect to see a disaster like that against a winless team. With a franchise quarterback, that Sam Darnold is. Darnold's presence on the Jets' offense completely changed the composure. 21 points in the first half, 200 yards passing in the first half, more offensive touchdowns in the first two quarters than the Jets had had through their first four games. Chris, more touchdowns in two quarters than four games. (laughs) It's insane. Things aren't perfect. I mean, they went into a slump for almost all of the second half because obviously they're, they're not well coached. Yeah, they're a good the coach Jets. would they're just the keep Jets. trying to pile on them instead of trying to play safe and just hope your defense, which has been beat up by everyone, can bail you out. 
but their defense did just enough to keep the game close and ultimately hold off a furious comeback attempt. Chris, our division has two teams, though, that combined for one and nine records. One and nine! It's insane. And in past years, usually that's us. <laughs> I don't even know that we could be that bad, but it's worth noting that it's refreshing not to be at the bottom. And that's where our next team is. That's Miami. The Redskins beat the Dolphins 17-16. to It's the take ball, everybody! The battle of winless teams was, I mean, it was something. <laughs> I tried watching it and just couldn't. It, it was just, Chris, there was too much other quality football being played. Was that game on uh, Home and Garden? What, what, no, Home and Garden. What channel was that on? I'm assuming it got the same ratings. TLC, the learning channel? That probably sounds about right. Ultimately, the team that fired their coach found a way to come away with a W. Terry McLaren, who has, I think, been the steal of this draft at the wide receiver position, and also of my fan- is saving my fantasy football teams, had 100 yards and two touchdowns. And, and figured out a way, a team to get a first. He, he led his team to their first win since they fired their head coach. <sighs> Players were emotional about the loss of their head coach, and they took it personally. You, know, you saw it on social media. You saw a lot of the stories. Their failure to execute cost not them. They didn't lose anything. It cost somebody else's livelihood. So this is exactly the response I expected. On the Dolphin side, you have to wonder, what are you doing? It's one thing to commit to being bad, which they've done. But for fuck's sake, you benched your best defensive player, quarterback Xavier Howard, plays every single snap of last week's game. No issues. No problems. Then this week, because you're playing another zero-win team, He's dubbed with this mysterious, quote-unquote, knee injury. I guarantee you he'll play this week. I guarantee you he'll play this week against Buffalo. But he, he couldn't play last week when his team needed him. And there's been a with the, uh, the injury tags. And then, when the game isn't going well, Chris, and this is what doesn't make sense to me, when the game isn't going well with Rosen, you bench him, <laughs> the guy you just named your starter, and put Ryan Fitzpatrick in, who proceeds to almost win the game. <laughs> what? What's happening here? I have no idea. If I'm the Dolphins, I'd get to the bottom. <laughs> I, I want the Dolphins to be in the bottom. I want them to get their quarterback because I want that Jim Kelly, Dan, Dan Marino-like rivalry at some point. Oh, I mean, ultimately, folks, that game was exactly what it should have been. Exciting to see the box score, painful to watch in person, and ultimately confusing in terms of how either one of those teams moves forward from here. But we all know where the Miami Dolphins are heading from there, and that's home to Buffalo, New York. Folks, our Week 7 preview, Miami Dolphins versus the Buffalo Bills. Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard, place, New Era Field, Orchard Park, New York. Chris, do you know who's on the call? No idea. Of course you don't, because we record on Tuesdays before 506 Sports releases the rundowns. What is the line currently according to Vegas, Chris? Uh, I was going to say something uh, funny, but I'm not going to. It's 16 and a half. Bills. That's right, folks. A Bills team that has only scored more than 17 points twice all season is actually favored by that same margin. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. It is exactly how I feel. It's insanity to think that an NFL team 
is actually capable of being as poor as the Dolphins have been this year to a point that the Bills are favored by this wide of a margin. I mean, Chris, if I'm a, are you a gambling man? Uh, no, I have not. I've never gambled on sports, although I should. I think I think you and I should each take two hundred dollars and pound the under. Pound the under. Yeah, I, I give with as bad as our offense has been. Take the Dolphins. Take the Dolphins in the under. Yeah. Dolphins getting getting two and a quarter touchdowns. That's a collegiate score. That is a collegiate spread. We are not Alabama. <sighs> but when you look at it, Chris, I think it's less it's less of a conversation piece about the Buffalo Bills, and it's more of an indictment of what Vegas thinks about the Dolphins. I think back to the time, the last time I saw a team actually trying to stink at football. And I'm reminded of the 2011 Colts team that started Curtis Painter at quarterback. Chris, the man spent his whole career holding, a, a, being a professional clipboard holder for Peyton Manning. When Peyton Manning goes out with his neck injury, the Colts see this opportunity to, to hey, there's this kid coming out of Stanford, Andrew Luck. He's been tabbed as the next generational quarterback. And so was born the Suck for Luck campaign. They started Curtis Painter on their way to a 2-11 record in order to land him as their quarterback of the future. It was egregious, and it was obvious that they were trying to be a bad football team. And yet despite that, and despite going their first 13 games that year without a win, that 2011 Colts team somehow managed to be statistically better than the, this Miami Dolphins. Chris, through five games, when I look back at their stats and compare them to what the Dolphins have done now, they outscored Miami 87-42. to They lost three of their five games by one score or less. Miami has exactly one of those. They gave up an average of 399 yards per game to Miami's 440. That's a 41-yard swing per game. The Dolphins may have actually constructed the most statistically, categorically pathetic football team in the history of the NFL. And I mean, it, it, it really has been something to take in from a safe distance. I mean, Chris, with a tire fire that size, you don't stand too close to it, right? So with all of that said, <laughs> I'd still like to pick the brain of someone who's actually standing in the middle of the raging inferno known as the Miami Dolphins. Travis Wingfield. Soccer-style kicker. Graduated from Collier High, June 1976. Stetson University Honors graduate, class of 1980. Holds two NCAA Division I records, one for most points in a season, one for distance. Former nickname The Mule, the first and only pro athlete ever to come out of Collier County and one hell of a model of America. Locked on Dolphins podcast. But this is Miami now. Mr. Travis Wingfield, how are you doing this evening, sir? I'm doing good, man. How are you guys doing out there? <laughs> we're doing pretty good. We're doing pretty good. Uh, fresh off a of bye week, we're rested, we're relaxed, and we're 4-1. and one. Uh, How are things in South Beach? Uh, Tua's coming down the pipeline here pretty soon, so <laughs> we'll, I'll tell you in about six months. Saturdays have gotten a lot, uh, a lot more interesting to Dolphins fans. Would you say that? <laughs> Absolutely, man. I have a blast watching college on Saturday because usually I have to bet on the games to really get that 
juice is going, you know, but this year it's just like I'm just scouting machine over and over again with all those draft picks. Way more fun than Sundays this year. No, absolutely. Now, for all of our new listeners who may not have been around in the preseason, this is Travis Wingfield, host of the Lockdown Dolphins podcast. He also does a lot of work for the Lockdown brand. You'll, you know, you'll see him crossing over with podcasts all over the place, but he is He's one of my favorite resources when it comes to the Miami Dolphins. I mean, he's just and just to watch where his career has grown from when we first met him. It's incredible. I mean, I'm incredibly proud of the guy. I'm proud to say that we know him and I'm happy to have him on here tonight because we have a lot to talk about. Now, as a content producer, this is something that Chris and I have struggled with at times over the course of the last five years doing this show. How hard is it? The Dolphins are winless. How hard is it to be a content producer on a, if not daily basis, every other basis when the Dolphins are giving you what they're giving you right now? Well, that's the challenge of being the content producer, right? Finding the things that people want to hear and read about. And the Dolphins, you know, for as bad as they are, and they are probably the worst team in the history of the National Football League right now. At least there is a vision and stuff on the other side of, you know, I keep using the Andy Dufresne reference from Shawshank, like the guy that crawls through 50 feet of crap and winds up clean on the other side. At least there is the idea of a brighter future. When you look at teams like Washington or Cincinnati, like what do those guys have to look <laughs> forward to? So I've been I've been pretty much inundated in the college game as much as I possibly can be. I'm doing college reports every single Saturday, and the fans seem to like it, so we're doing okay on the numbers and stuff, but yeah, there are some days where I really have to reach for it, man. Oh man! So I'm taking a look at this uh, pro football. Pro football reference does like a nice little like a synopsis for every single team when you go to their like annual page, and it kind of just encapsulates where they a snapshot, if you will, of everywhere they rank on offense, defense, all of their statistics in a nice little condensed box. And I see a lot of 31s and 32s here. On both sides of the ball for the Miami Dolphins. And I guess this is, but that's by design. And so that's where I guess I want to start tonight's conversation with you first. You're over here, you're trying to produce content for the fans who are looking for a certain type of thing, something to scratch their football itch. Trades and tanking. What what kind of an effect has this had on the Miami Dolphins fan base? I mean, to quote Vero Delfino, who you are more than familiar with from the Fourth and Inches <laughs> podcast, he put out a tweet that I, I died. His tweet goes, I hope we win this game. That being said, I hope we lose. Being a Dolphins fan in 2019 is some wild shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's exactly right. And like... I think that there is a big contingency of Dolphins fans that did want that victory, but there's also plenty that did not. And I, Drew, I'm, I don't know if I'm embarrassed to admit this, but when Terry McLaren scored that first touchdown, I was out of my chair fist pumping because <laughs> the winning this game, winning these games does nothing for this year. I don't, I don't really care about joining the 0-16 ranks. It means nothing to me. It's all about the quarterback next year. And in my opinion, there's one quarterback that stands out above the rest of them. And so if we have to do whatever it takes to get them, and that's kind of where the Dolphins approach this season by getting rid of all these guys to ensure they were going to be this bad because we didn't know that Washington or Cincinnati could be this bad. And if Miami had hung on to Laramie Tunzel and Kenny Stills and Minka Fitzpatrick, they would have won games like this. If they would have started Ryan Fitzpatrick, they would have won this game. And then, like we did in t- 2012, you wind up with Ryan Tannehill and not Andrew Luck. So they're trying to foolproof this thing and make sure they get that first pick. And so far, it's working. <clears throat> so I guess the last question that I have as far as this, and then we'll move on. What do you think 
Nightmare scenario, just to hear it from you, would be the fallout of not landing the first overall pick. I mean, I'm looking around the league. We talked about it here on this show probably, it was last week, I believe, that going into week, you know, coming out of week four, there was never that many winless teams. I, I went back 20 years, through, through 20 years of NFL history as of week five, and there had never been in that 20-year span that many winless teams. Now, you've seen teams like the Broncos have gotten one. Uh, the, the Cardinals are coming on. They're winning a couple here and there. The Steelers are starting to turn their stuff around. Washington beat you guys. But there's te- there's still Cincinnati out there. there. Washington still isn't that much improved. What would be the long-term effect of not ending up with the number one pick in this draft for the, the for the Dolphins? Yeah, it's crazy. There's never been this much. There's never been this lack of parity in the NFL as there is right now, in my opinion. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic of it. But honestly, I don't have a good backup plan because that is the plan. And we've seen people talk about like Cam Newton in the last couple of days. People are getting excited about Joe Burrow from LSU, which he's played great, but it's like six games. So can we chill on that just a little bit? Um, you look at Justin Herbert in Oregon, that's kind of a backup plan, but all these guys pale in comparison. So to me, I, I honestly don't know what the answer is because you have this coaching staff who's in a, a tricky, uh, tricky situation where do they go after a veteran quarterback? Do they draft a rookie and try to go with Rosen and that rookie? If it's not Tua, who obviously would just come in day one and start for you. So I think it is the ultimate nightmare scenario. If you don't get the first pick, it would pretty much undo most of what they've done. Even though they've done a good job of accumulating resources and assets to spend in the future, it all revolves around that quarterback. And if you can get that elite level quarterback, which, you know, a lot of scouts believe he is, and you have the cap space to spend the money and you have the quarterback on that rookie contract, it really frees you up to do other stuff. So it all kind of it all kind of cascades together into this great master plan. They have to execute it still, but if it doesn't get the quarterback, then I don't see how the plan works because, like I said to you, about Ryan Tannehill and Andrew Luck, the only thing worse than not drafting the right or than, than not having the franchise quarterback is having the wrong one, and Ryan Tannehill for seven years was the wrong one, and that's why they were always seven wins, eight wins, and it keeps you in that purgatory. So going away from a quarterback that's not that high-level, upside, potentially franchise-altering quarterback – that's where the plan starts, and I think that's where they have to be. So it's pretty much plan one and no plan beyond that for me. So you just mentioned something interesting about being in purgatory. Now, Bills fans can can tell you all about this, and I'm sure Dolphins fans know a little bit about it too because both of our franchises kind of did this thing where we had underwhelming quarterback play, and then we also found underwhelming coaches to try to manage the team around them and what you got were mediocre results, which doomed us both to just middling draft picks, you know, mediocre turnouts year over year over year. Now, I understand your team is winless, but Brian Flores has been something of, uh, I don't know, I've seen some Dolphins fans want him fired or think he could be fired. Other people say that it's ridiculous, like we were talking about it in the preseason. He has a five-year deal as a first-time head coach. He doesn't get that deal if the franchise didn't have faith in him. This is, hey, we know something bad's coming. Here's a deal that's going to make you feel secure as we just crater your first season. You know you're going to get taken care of. With that said, what have you seen from him through these first five weeks? Are you encouraged as far as who he could be as a head coach with a talented roster? Like as far as how he manages the team? 
Yeah, and you nailed that point about the five-year contract, fully guaranteed, because most times it's three years with a fourth-year option, and they gave him that extra year buffer. And you go back to some of the things that he said when they first hired him. He made it a point to say, look, I've got opportunities around the league. I interviewed last year. I've had interviews this year. If it wasn't the right situation, I'm up in New England where coaches have the most job security in the history of the NFL. I can just stay there, make money, and coach winning football teams. I don't have to leave. Of course, the head coaching job is what you all want. So he said that if we weren't aligned in our vision, meaning he, Chris Greer, and Stephen Ross, and give those guys credits, be credit because they've had issues being consistent in their message in the past, but this year it's been consistent all the way from January till now, so you can appreciate that. So Flores said that vision was aligned with what his vision was, so he had to have known that the five-year deal, having this basically throwaway season this year, was all part of that package. Now as far as what he's been on the field, there's just not really a whole lot that he can do because he has these concepts where you have to have guys do a job, right? And if Mm -hmm. one guy breaks down that job, it doesn't work. And there's been so many examples on both defense and offense. And I'll go on the offensive side here for a second in particular because I just finished watching the Josh Rosen passing tape, and my God, is it bad. But some of the things that he's had to deal with is they're trying to find ways just to get him to the top of his drop without getting sacked because the pass protection is so bad. And so they'll go with these max protection plays and two-man route combinations where it's built in to hopefully take a shot down the field and just keep your quarterback upright. And it's it's not working because these guys can't execute it. So it's difficult to gauge him this season. And I think the structure of the defense is sound. We saw in that Lions game on Monday night, the way they challenge receivers with that trail technique and punch the ball out. There's been some of that and some success in that. But there's just so many guys that can't do it because they overturned 25% of the roster before the season started on August 30th. And they were left basically with a minor league football team. And this is the result of it. So I think next year we'll have a full chance to judge him. But 2019 is completely a wash. Okay, so you're talking about the defense and how they're, you know, how they're performing this year. If we're going to try to you know, summarize who and what they might be come Sunday, you know, come Sunday at New Era Field, what are we going to see? The first thing I want to pick your brain about was something interesting that we took away from our conversation with you during the preseason. I want to talk about the, your front seven. Now, coming into this season, your take on the front seven was that your linebacker core might be one of the better ones in the in the AFC, if not an up-and-coming unit in the NFL. Are, after watching five games, are your linebackers still as talented in, now as you gave them credit for back then? Yeah, the guy that has really lived up to my uh, hype was Raekwon McMillan, who I think is number one or number two on Pro Football Focus's grades right now for linebackers. But he's been basically one-dimensional and that he goes forward and doesn't blitz and doesn't play the pass. He is a run defender, and he is excellent at it. Now, Jerome Baker was the one that kind of gave me the confidence to say that because in the preseason, he was covering, he was blitzing, he was getting a pressure like every other pass rush rep that he had, and he was doing stuff against the run as well. And he has not been that player at all this season. He's been really bad for basically like four out of the five games. Now, he did turn it on Sunday and had his best game of the year. He had, I think it was 18 pass coverage reps and didn't even get a target, so he was either doing his job or Case Keenum didn't see it. So I don't know which one of those is. I haven't got to the tape on that yet. But I think that with those two guys and then Vince Beagle, this guy we traded Kiko Alonso for, has been really good at rushing the passer so far. He's been kind of part of that mix. But Charles Harris is pretty much done for. Uh, who else we got here in the linebacker roster? Sam Aguavin has been a absolute shit show, for lack of a better term. He was a guy that was really good in the preseason and just completely fell off the face of the earth. Probably not even an NFL player right now at this point. So I probably oversold that unit a little bit. 
But again, it's just it. There's so much these guys have to be responsible for as far as you know run game, pass game, and trying to help out the lack of pass rush, trying to help out in the coverage area because these safeties are new. It's just, it, there's, it's a perfect combination of bad football, and there's only so much you can evaluate from it. Well, and that's, and I guess it's one of the mysteries when I, when I look at this and I see what the, just the numbers, just box score scouting on what you guys have accomplished in that front seven. So you're, if I'm, if I'm looking at this, and if pro football reference is to be believed, so, so far, you're 31st in rushing yards allowed. You're 32nd in passing touchdowns and 26th in passing yards allowed. All of these things are just, it's not good. It's not a good thing for the defense as a whole. But one of the craziest stats to me is that as a team, the Miami Dolphins only have five sacks. There are players in the NFL who have five sacks already. And your team as a completed package have somehow managed to match that. Now, if and when the defensive line does bring pressure, where does it come from, or what is it that's dragging that unit down? Uh, there really isn't anybody in particular. I guess Christian Wilkins on the inside would be the guy you look for, the first-round draft pick, but he hasn't done it at all so far this year. He's kind of working on re- revamping his game to fit this scheme. I think he's coming along slowly, but he's just not there yet. And as far as the pure pass rushers, they, they just don't have them, and it doesn't really help that the Dolphins are consistently behind on the scoreboard by multiple scores by the time the first quarter is over. So teams are just kind of running the football and, and milking the clock that way. And as far as what they've done on defense, the offense can't stay on the field. So this Sunday, the Dolphins had their best defensive showing, obviously, against the worst offense they faced in Washington. But a big part of that was the fact that the time of possession was pretty much evenly split, where in previous games, it was almost 40-20 in terms of time of possession every single game. So teams can just line up, run the ball, and basically work on what they want to work on against the Dolphins' defense because they know the offense is not a threat to score any points. Now, Ryan Fitzpatrick came into the game and scored two touchdowns in that fourth quarter. Prior to that, the point totals were 10, 6, 0, and 10. And the first three quarters produced three points in that game on Sunday with Josh Rosen. So I, the defense isn't good, don't get me wrong, but I blame most of it on the offense because they just cannot do anything. It's so far behind modern-day football, and it's, it's really dragging the defense down too. Who's been, just as ba- who's been bad too, so don't get me wrong. No, but I blame no, the and, offense And the reason the I ask about – well, the, the reason I'm so focused on pressure – Okay. The book on Josh Allen has to read. If every if every defensive coordinator in the NFL has a book on a quarterback, there must be in giant red letters at the top, blitz Josh Allen. Because when you look at it, he's the third, even though we are coming off a bye, he's still, I think, third or fourth most blitzed quarterback in the NFL right now. So the thing that teams have tried to do, and you've seen it happen, I mean, people look at the score, myself included, and say, I don't understand why he's not doing more. Well, teams are sending waves of pass rushers at him in order to disrupt his timing. They know he's a young quarterback who's still learning the nuances of, you know, they people have figured out that he's not out there running around trying to just create on his own anymore. He the team is really trying to focus on making him a pocket passer. So with that, teams are doing everything they can to disrupt it, so they're sending waves of blitzers. With that said, it doesn't seem like the Dolphins have any kind of pass rush, even when they do blitz. So I'm just interested to see how, if there's any way this team can create pressure to try and disrupt Allen, and if they did, what that might look like. No, that's a great question, but there's also a reason why it's a 17-point spread for an offense for Buffalo that really hasn't scored that much. That's a crazy spread to cover <laughs> for you know a team thing. that's defensive-oriented. So if they were going to find pressure... <laughs> 
it's hard to tell you what it looks like because they haven't done it yet. But if you want to take the Patriots carbon copy for Brian Flores, it's all about stunts and games and twists and getting, you know, the, the linebackers involved as pass rushers. And I go back to Vince Beagle, who had three pressures on limited pass rush work on Sunday. He's kind of been the guy that's been driving that force, which tells you where this team is at from a pass rush standpoint. You'd hope Jerome Baker can do some of that, but he hasn't done any of it so far this year. But you expect to see some A-gap pressures, you know, the two linebackers walking up into the A-gaps and then watch the defensive ends try to loop inside for a stunt or try to get pressure that way. And then Christian Wilkins is probably the best opportunity for a guy that can just win one-on-ones on the interior. So it's not going to happen, but if it does, that would be how it looks. <laughs> I like how you're so resolute in that. Dude, have you seen them play? It's I mean, like I've, I keep getting these types of conversations, and it's w- like Wingfield. I'll tell you this: they're so bad. They're as so I've said bad. multiple times over the last few weeks, between you guys and the Jets, I think I've on Game Pass. I've gone back and watched all your games because I'm petty. Because I'm petty, and I genuinely <laughs> enjoy the suffering of other people. So, so with well, that, at, at least at least we're not trying. The Jets fan suffering is real because they're actually trying. So I I, I totally get that. So, I mean, I guess when we're looking at the Dolphins, is it fair to say that the, I mean, I've crunched the numbers and I've got some keys here that I think might win the Bills the game, but is it fair to say that through the air, teams have just, uh, through the air, through the ground, I, I can't tell which is the more direct route to beating you guys because it seems like everybody pretty much does whatever they want on a pretty pretty regular basis. I mean, is that a fair statement for me to make? I think so, but I also think you can just probably line up and run the ball down their throats, and that's kind of what Washington planned to do. And it's it's funny that it worked the way, how well it did. They, I think they ran for like 135 yards in that game, and everybody knew that that was coming because Adrian Peterson doesn't get hyped up to play for an 0-5 Washington team unless he's getting 25 carries, and he was talking about all week how he's so excited about this game plan. <laughs> well, no shit, because you're getting the ball, and that's all you care about anymore, and your touch, your, you know, your records and your NFL legacy, all that stuff, and still they ran for 135 yards, so I think you can just line up and pound it down their throats. I know the Bills have kind of morphed into more of a track team on offense as far as what they have outside, but I think that if they want to, they can work on their run game this week because you're not going to allow any points they're, they're going to shut the Dolphins out like I hope you guys <laughs> know that so you can do whatever well, you want on offense I guess that's a good place to out, your defense can probably outscore our offense well that's probably a good place to pivot then and talk about why you believe we're going to shut you we're going to shut you guys out here's one of the things on the offensive side of the ball just changing gears here I look at in my mind I watch this and it's enough for the story for the Dolphins is another year another coaching staff and yet another offensive line that's completely under siege I mean, this thing is a boat for the, it feels like the last half a decade, the Dolphins offensive line has just been a boat that by week six or seven is just taking on water. I'm looking at it now. You have four different offensive tackles that have played more than 50 snaps. You've got three (laughs) offensive guards with more than 40, three rookies currently in the lineup getting snaps. There's been injury. There's just been blatant ineffectiveness. What the hell is going on with that up front for you guys? Yeah, it kind of started that way in the beginning of the season where basically Laramie Tunzel was the only good offensive lineman they had, and we know what happened with him. And it was kind of like, well, do we keep Tunzel and just still be a shitty offensive line or trade him and get draft picks and be an even worse offensive line? (laughs) They still can't do anything. So that's kind of what it's been. They've had an issue at tackle. I don't think that there's a tackle on this roster right now that projects into the rebuild next year. So that's going to be a big point of contention, finding two tackles to start for you because Jesse Davis has been a guard tackle. He's been everything in his career so far. And they gave him an extension. They tried him at left tackle. 
He can't do it. He's not quick enough off the edge. So he goes back to right tackle where he started through all of training camp, and he gets smoked by Ryan Kerrigan multiple times in this game. The left guard is rookie Michael Dieter, a third-round draft pick who came from Wisconsin, and everybody loves Wisconsin offensive linemen, so he had high hopes, but he's been dreadful, just absolutely dreadful, beaten like a drum. I'm sure Jordan Phillips will have fun on him on Sunday. And then a right guard, Evan Bame, is actually the one guy that's been decent. He and Dan Kilgore in that, that center-right guard combination have been decent, but still, they're vulnerable to, to power and speed at the same time, too. So, I mean, if you want positives, I guess go somewhere else because I can't give you any. <laughs> this, it's so bad. It's just so bad, man. And, and and Rosen really compounds it. So it's just the entire operation of the offensive line and quarterback play. It's it's the worst probably ever. So watching Josh Rosen. So earlier before we brought you in, I brought up the, the Colts season and Curtis Painter. You know, the year the Colts purposely tried to tank for uh, Andrew Luck. For Andrew Luck. You know, the whole suck for luck campaign, kind of like your tank for Tua. And they did so by starting quarterback Curtis Painter, who was just, you could tell from the onset of that season, was just overwhelmed by what it took to be an NFL starter. Now, when, you know, you look at everybody looked at this game, I think earlier in the season after the trade for Josh Rosen and assumed that by the time this part of the season rolled around, even if the Dolphins were awful, there was still going to be, hey, Josh Rosen versus Josh Allen, and this is going to be competitive. And it just doesn't look like Rosen is capable of delivering on that. So now you have a quarterback controversy on your hands, but it seems like the team wants to stick with Rosen because he guarantees you guys some semblance of a guaranteed loss. I mean, you have Fitzpatrick, you bring him in late in the game. He almost brings you back and wins it. So then they decide to go for two. I couldn't decide. Okay, so last week when you guys brought in Ryan Fitzpatrick, I couldn't tell if it was because they really genuinely wanted to win the game. Or if it was more of just like a mercy thing where they were like, listen, nobody needs to be subjected to this game anymore. So either we're going to win or we're going to lose, but we're going to do it on this play because there's no fucking overtime in this place. We're not doing it. Just what what are we going to get from the quarterback group of the Miami Dolphins this weekend? And I look at that play and I wonder what the intent was because they had a cut block from the left tackle who was outflanked by the end. And that's just not a block that you can make. Like it's not possible to do, even if it was me at defensive end and Laramie Tunzel at left tackle, like you can't physically do it. So I I do wonder what the intent of that play call was. But then again, you go back and you mentioned Fitzpatrick coming into the game and he played really well. Go to my Twitter thread or my, my Twitter timeline. I put some videos up showing some comparisons between what uh, I guess I almost said Tannehill, Jesus. What <laughs> Rosen did compared to Fitzpatrick, and there is an exact replica play of Gasicki running up the seam, and Fitzpatrick lets that thing fly with anticipation before this before Gasicki clears a linebacker, and then you go to Rosen's play where he tries to rip the same route, and he waits until he clears a linebacker, and then it almost gets picked off, actually dropped by Landon Collins. And the almost game-winning touchdown there at the end, Fitzpatrick makes a brilliant veteran play where he moves Landon Collins with his body position, forces him into the flat, clears up the post, and shoots a touchdown into Devontae Parker. And so he's playing at this high level, and there's no question who's the better quarterback. I talked about it all training camp. I saw it with my own eyes. Ryan Fitzpatrick is such a better quarterback right now than Josh Rosen. It's not even funny, but they – this what. I mean, did they trade a second-round draft pick to ensure that Rosen would deliver the first overall pick? Because it feels that way right now. If it works, and though, if it works, yeah, don't you? Yeah. Wouldn't you feel like? A, wouldn't you look at your GM if that trade worked? When everyone made, you know, when the trade was made, people were like, oh no, they're trying to fast track the rebuild. What if 
What, what level of confidence would you have that your GM is savvy if his intent truly was, I'm going to trade away this second round pick to make sure I suck bad enough to get that first overall and rebuild my franchise? And almost in a way that gets the NFL off their back for this whole investigation about tanking and stuff, because you can look at that and say, well, he was a 10th pick in 2018. They obviously had intentions to try to groom and develop him. And maybe they did. But from minicamp and training camp, they spoke very early on. I was in the room when Brian Flores mentioned this. They asked about Josh Rosen. I think it was Jeff Darlington of ESPN asked about Josh Rosen. And you just see this like look of exasperation come across Flores' face because he wasn't close. And I still don't think he is. The timing is a big issue in his game right now. And I think that the coaches probably want Ryan Fitzpatrick to play if they want to win games. But it makes me wonder if there is a mandate from up top, you know, Stephen Ross saying, hey, we traded the draft pick for this guy. Let's develop him. We can sell that to the media. We can sell that to the league. <laughs> but at the end of the day, he, Josh Rosen's batting 1,000 right now, delivering first overall picks in his NFL career. So, oh, I mean, shit. that's, I that's what I want. That. That's what I think he's going to do. And I, it just makes sense that he's going to do it again. Now, for my own personal Schadenfreude, okay, I was not a Josh Allen guy coming out into the draft. And I don't oh, think, I know. And I don't think you were either. Well, no, no he were, was. You referred was. to him as a skyline changer. So I'll never forget that quote. So now you were an Allen supporter. I was a staunch anti-Josh Allen supporter. And when we drafted him, I was upset, to put it mildly. And Josh Rosen has gone on now to play for two franchises. And I think that you getting a chance to see him up close and personal. I want to ask you now. Going back to what you thought pre-draft and what you're seeing out of Rosen now, how is it, is it really genuinely as as far away, because people talk about missing on him as if it was the biggest, one of the biggest draft misses of all time, just based on what he's putting on the field and what people thought he could be pre-draft. You know, people were talking about him potentially being better than, you know, up there with the Darnold conversation of being QB1 for the entire class. Having a chance to see it up close and personal, how far away do you think those pre-draft projections truly were? Yeah, I think he entered the year prior to that as, like you mentioned, QB1 with Sam Darnold. But seeing him up close and personal at, at camp every day, the guy was just inaccurate all the time. And he was off the same thing all the time. I'm going to keep saying it on time and on target. And those are two things that he struggles with. Now, I had him. High, I had Josh Allen much higher because I never believed in Josh Rosen. And I'm not here to like, you know, pound my chest and say, I got that one right. It sucks as a fan base to watch these quarterbacks come in and, and suck every single year. But I think that that draft, the pre-draft hype is is so built up into what it is, right? Because people want to basically find confirmation bias and just tell you exactly what they know. Because let's be honest, most people that had Josh Allen opinions didn't watch a lot of Wyoming football. Let's be real about that. Who did and watch so it? They, you couldn't find Wyoming football on TV. Okay, let, let, let's call a spade a spade. <laughs> Mountain West, CBS Sports Network. I think it's like 221 on uh, on, on DirecTV. I love that channel. This. I love me some Mountain West football, but I love every football football, so I'm, I'm weird. But you go back to you know to the thoughts about his completion percentage, right? Like his, his accuracy. That's the thing that everyone harps on. And yeah, he'll miss a lot of layups. But where I liked Josh Allen is that at least when he's not firing in the passing game, he gives you an extra body, an extra threat in the running game. And that's a big deal with quarterbacks. You look at what Cam Newton was back when he was a runner. He was almost impossible to defend because of that. And now he doesn't have that element to his game and he's going to be out in Carolina, it sounds like. So 
with Josh Allen, you take the good with the bad. He's high upside. If he can just limit those mistakes and really kind of hone that game in, which is it, it's easier said than done, as we've learned with Jameis Winston. But I think if he can just kind of harness, you know, more of a conservative approach and still pair that with the big playability, you guys will be fine, especially with the way the running game can pair with Josh Allen and whoever they have at tailback with that solid defense. That's a good complementary way to build a football team. It's what they did in Carolina when McDermott was there with with Cam Newton. And I think you guys are doing it right by doing it that way. And I, I mean, I would take Josh Allen in a heartbeat over Josh Rosen right now. <laughs> well, I mean, at this point, seeing the results, so would everybody here. So is there anybody? I mean, if I'm trying to identify a credible threat, now you're talking about the Bills shutting out the Miami Dolphins, which it's happened this season already. So I understand you are well within your right to suggest that. That might not be hyperbole. Is there anybody on the Dolphins offense who, if there is, somebody who might threaten the defense, who are they? I still think it remains Kenyon Drake, even though the guy seems to be as up and down as anybody in the NFL. He can st- he makes the first guy miss almost every time he touches it, but he also has drops and fumbles and blown pass protection, so he's he can't get on the field because of those reasons. In the receiving core, it's basically been all Preston Williams and all Devontae Parker. I'll go with the rookie, Preston Williams, because he has gotten open deep. He's had some issues with some drops, but I think I'm not, I haven't studied the Bills close enough to know if they deal with speed receivers or physical receivers better. But if you guys have any struggles with, you know, contested catches and tall receivers getting down the field, that's where Williams can excel and where he can beat you. So expect him to try to get some takeoff routes in the boundary. And if they can get one-on-one, they'll take a shot at those. And if they don't, then they'll basically just go back to being the lifeless offense they've been all year. <laughs> my God. I'm almost afraid to ask, but I think I already have my answer. What is your prediction for the final score of Sunday's game? <laughs> um, You know, I, I do think the Bills, like we mentioned, will try to get that running game going. And so by virtue of just <laughs> running clock out where you're not actually playing football, the game will be shortened a little bit. And the Bills, like teams have done this so far to the Dolphins. They've kind of used Miami as an extended bye week. The Cowboys did it. The Chargers did it. They woke up and played in the second half. So I think Buffalo might do some of the same. But at the end of the day, they wind up scoring late. I'll say 27 zip. Wow. All right. Well, <laughs> Jesus, it's a pretty, that's a, I think this might be the most negative review that a guest has ever given of his own football team. But there are well, what, what's what are the Dolphins done in Buffalo since, have they won it? I mean, the, the Jay Ajayi game, they won. Christ, but I would say Christmas Eve. Yeah. Christmas Beyond Eve. That, the one that actually mattered, right? With Matt Moore, of course, yep. Ryan Tannehill could fucking win the game up there. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you go to Buffalo, you know, it's going to be tough. You know, the fans are going to be assholes and get on you and, and it makes the environment tougher. You go and probably going to be inclement weather like it always is. You've got a horrible offense, a quarterback that is late against a defense that just feasts on that type of quarterback. I mean, this is the recipe for a shutout, four turnovers, you know, two defensive scores. It's going to be a bloodbath, man. Like there's no way around it. <laughs> You almost sound happy about it, though, which is... I love it. I love it. <laughs> I just want that on LSU record. Tua's got LSU in about a month. I can't wait for that one. Uh, uh, <laughs> you're already looking at the college schedule. Man, you're doing you so much work over there, though, as far as the draft is concerned, which is actually yes. helping me in terms of identifying... Because I watch a lot of SEC football, and I don't pay attention to a lot else. You know, there's S- the Big 12, nobody plays defense, so I don't care about that yeah. so much. <laughs> um, the, the Big 10 always seems overblown. You know, they, they just, they're never as good as they're trumped to be or trumpeted to be. So I'm just thinking to myself, 
if I watch your timeline long enough, seeing how committed to college football, and for the rest of the Bills fans out there, if you want to get a jump start on your draft planning, go find his timeline on Twitter and go follow all the great stuff he's pumping out over there. Where can people find your work? Well, I appreciate it, sir. LockedOnDolphins.com. Every Saturday I do, it started off as a college quarterback scouting report, but now I started doing other players as well. And I'm doing it for Dolphins fits, but really they're just first round potential draft picks. So check that out on LockedOnDolphins.com. Of course, the daily Locked On Dolphins podcast, Monday through Friday, and then at, on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Well, folks, he seems to be pretty convinced that there is no hope for the Miami Dolphins, but just the same as we do before every game, I'm bringing you guys my keys to victory. Wow, that's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. More powerful the man, indeed. And that's what the Bills are just going to have to go out there and do. They're going to have to flex on Miami and show that they're just the more powerful team. And you know where that starts, Chris? With the front seven. Less containment and more pressure. The Bills' defense has been, in my opinion, one of the most assignment sound in the NFL through the first quarter of the season. And a lot of that is owed to the fact that they've got Edmonds, Milano, and our defensive line. They've all been really solid neutralizing the rushing attacks of our opponents. I mean, Chris, when you look at the strengths of the teams that we've played, you've played a Saquon Barkley. You've played a a Derrick Henry. You've played New England Patriots who you knew, given their lack of offensive weapons, you were probably better off making them one-dimensional than letting them find any success on the ground because that's where they kill you all the time. Yeah, I mean, you, you get Sony Michelle on the ground or you get James White out of the backfield pass catching. Yes. So, but, but, so with that said, they did a great job so far through the early going of the season, just corralling players, making sure that nobody got really going off the ground. With that said, this week against an offensive line that's being held together by duct tape and prayers, and a backfield that, I don't know, they've got Kalen Balage, who everyone, he was a preseason darling who just kind of fizzled out, a lot like Wingfield was talking about Jerome Baker. You know, everyone saw flashes of something, but come the regular season, he just hasn't done it. And Kenyon Drake, who is good as a complimentary back, but he's not a bell cow. So with that said, we need to be less assignment sound and more aggressive in dialing up pressure, because that's how everybody's gotten them. The Dolphins are giving up an average of four and a half sacks a game. And have five a game for their last two weeks. And when you, what's interesting to me is when you break down where they're coming from, the majority are being produced by the guys, the big uglies up front with their hands in the dirt. You're talking about defensive tackles, defensive ends, okay? Not, not blitzing cornerbacks, not linebackers. The Ravens, two out of their three sacks came from the defensive line. The Patriots, four of their seven sacks against Miami came from the defensive line. The Cowboys, all three of their sacks came from the D-line. The Chargers got two of their five, and Washington got four of their five. All from defensive linemen, not linebackers, not blitzing safeties, not cornerbacks. Even more notable, okay, most again, most of them were D-tackles. The Bills have to find a way to exploit that aspect of the Miami Dolphins' defense, I mean, offensive line. That's how you push this trend, Chris, of having Josh Rosen or Ryan Fitzpatrick, whoever's under center, of not being able to find their rhythm on offense. I mean, it sounds an awful lot like they've, Chris, you've given up, you've never had a game without a sack. The lowest you've ever given up was three. You're trending in the wrong direction with five a game. This seems like the game where Jordan Phillips and Ed Oliver need to eat, right? That sounds good for me. I'd love, I'd love to have uh, Ed Oliver have a uh, coming out party here. Absolutely. And the thing is, if you fail to do this correctly, 
You're going to allow the Finns, especially if for any reason Ryan Fitzpatrick comes into the game, they're going to start working play action, and they're going to get a chance to establish themselves in the short passing game. And that's going to extend drives a lot longer than they should. And then the intermediate and deep passing game. Through the first three weeks of football, the Dolphins were on pace to give up the most points in NFL history. They gave up 59 points, 43, and 31 respectively. Last week, they held the Redskins, which are no powerhouse on offense, to just 17 points and 166 passing yards. When you look at the passing charts over the first few weeks of the season, it tells an interesting story between those three games, the first three games of the season and what we saw last week. Okay, Chris, I have a chart in front of you because you know I like to make them. <laughs> yeah, you love charts. So I've charted out Lamar Jackson, Tom Brady, and Dak Prescott and the pass attempts that they took 10 or more yards downfield through the air. Lamar Jackson, 7 of 6 for an 85% completion percentage and three touchdowns. I mean, on the day he threw five touchdowns, three of them traveled through the air 10 or more yards. Tom Brady. Tom Brady has struggled. You know, we talked about that earlier in the show. He was 9 of 12 in passes that went 10 or more yards downfield. 75% completion percentage and one of his two touchdowns. Yeah, one to his uh, favorite target, Antonio Brown. Dak Prescott. Now, this is where it gets interesting. 14 attempts 10 yards downfield, six completions. Only 42%, but he still got a touchdown. And Keenum. Case Keenum last week, eight, t- eight attempts, four completions, 50%, two touchdowns. So to give that a little bit of context, even quarterbacks who weren't capable of throwing the ball downfield with supreme accuracy still found, because of breakdowns in coverage and just lack of overall ability of the secondary, still generated touchdowns by going down the field. Throwing downfield on this defense yields rewards. Anybody who was able to do so with even a little bit of accuracy feasted on these teams. So that's where for everybody who was mad at me about my opinion of our quarterback, this is where you are hoping to see Josh Allen step up and execute. Throw the ball down the field with accuracy and take advantage of this monstrous liability here that has been the Dolphins' defense in the, in the deep passing game for almost the entirety of the season, Chris. That sounds like pretty sound logic to me, correct? Yeah, I hope Josh Allen has. Well, Josh, if Josh Allen balls out, you know, maybe the, by then the national media will catch on and then we'll be over here going easy, just the fucking Dolphins. <laughs> Nothing to get excited yeah, about. Yeah, because you know the national media isn't wild enough already. Jesus Christ. And hopefully he doesn't throw for 300 yards because our listener from Australia, Mike Swenson, he's finally got his first Seagram's bet in with us. He is coming here for the Broncos game. He has bet me that between now and the Denver game, Josh Allen will, in fact, have himself a 300-yard game. And I have to drink a Seagram's for every single one of them. So, bring it on, Swenson. Bring it on, Josh Allen. Bring it on, Buffalo Bills. I want to see them go out. I will gladly drink one. If he can prove he can go out there and execute the way I doubt him, (laughs) the way that I doubt that he can. And so with that, Chris, what do you think is going to happen? Your prediction for the game on Sunday. Uh, We're easily going to win. Okay. Easily going to win. I would. I don't think we'll. I think we'll be scoring as much as we've been scoring. So I'm going to say that we win seventeen to three. Okay, you're taking the conservative road. I like it because again, I'm not sold. I get it that this, <laughs> Chris. 
If Josh Allen can throw the ball downfield, something that he hasn't really done all that well this season, this team is going to romp. It's going to be like the the Carlos Williams game. It's going to be a game like that, where it just gets lopsided. You know, it's close for a little bit and then just blows up all over everybody. And by the end, the Dolphins have nothing to play for. My prediction, I still don't think we shut the Dolphins out. Because I think like last week, out of desperation, you're going to see Flores wanting to save a little face. He's going to bring in a Ryan Fitzpatrick. At some point in the game, I think you will see Fitzpatrick playing. I think Fitzpatrick is capable of generating at least 10 points. At least 10 points. So for me, I think that this is one of those 20 to 10 games because I think we're going to kick some field goals. I'm I'm comfortable with 20 to 10, but like you, I don't see any way the Bills blow this thing. And God help everyone. Everyone. God help Twitter. God help you, Chris. God help my neighbors if they don't. (laughs) Well, I'm going to make sure I have your phone by 9 a.m. on Sunday. Probably a good idea, sir. With that said, we got to get out of here. Before we do, make sure you come back next week because we're going to have another fantastic guest on. We have Michael Kiss from Bleeding Green Nation Radio. He's going to be joining us just to preview the matchup with the Eagles that I don't know. I don't know what to think about that team. Yeah, especially after what happened to them in uh, in Minnesota. And if you are going to the game on Sunday, 5330 Big Tree Road, look for the charge Buffalo flag. Come tailgate with us. I'm making a barbecue bacon chicken dip. I mean, come on out, for <laughs> fuck's sake. Uh, guys, go out there at the stadium. Hopefully we see you. If not, be loud, be proud, and let's go Bells. Guys, thank you so much for showing up tonight. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rock Pile Report.